Support for Coming Up Next comes from you, my friends. All you have to do is head to comingupnext.com.au, select the platform on which you listen to podcasts and hit subscribe. It's going to automate your podcast listening experience. You're going to feel real good about supporting the show and you're going to get a philosophical ramble with one of the world's top creatives each and every week. Welcome, welcome. It's coming up next. It's a podcast. You're listening to it. This is Alastair Marks, and this is my show. This is coming up next. Thanks for tuning in to uh, to another week of philosophical rambles with uh, with creatives on life, on career, and uh, ultimately on what makes us all silly. This is um, this is the show. If you didn't tune in last week, if this is your first time tuning in, welcome. Thank you for for stopping by. Thanks for choosing. Coming up next for your uh, oral pleasure. Uh, and if you'd like to check out previous episodes, my guest last week was uh, was Beck Hill, great Australian comedian uh, living in London. Uh, we had a, a an immense chat on um, on her journey through the world of comedy in uh, in Australia, in Adelaide, where she grew up, in Melbourne, uh, and then moving over to London. What that's been like um, creating paper puppetry. Um, it's 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 a great chat. Do it do it up, as Mark Marin says. Comingupnext.com.au is where you'll find that and every single other episode that we've done to date including this week's episode, which you already know because you're already listening to it, which is uh, a conversation with uh, documentary filmmaker Lizzie Kempton. She got a break uh, as a producer on, uh, on Junior Doctors. Um, she's made some great films, uh, How to Die, Simon's Choice, uh, Chris Packham, Asperger's and Me. Uh, she made a documentary on the Manchester bombing called Manchester Bomb, Our Story. I mean, we get into it all. We we get very specifically into uh, into the idea of storytelling and um, and making it as a, as a documentary director um, as a female. Uh, you know what? Let's just let's just get into it right now. Uh, coming up next with Lizzie Kempton. Cheers. This Cheers. is my second hubcast. <laughs> First was actually with that producer I was saying about before, with uh, with Frank, the guy who I work with ah, over here. Okay. Um, he insisted that we go and drink if we were going to be talking about. Actually, that was the second time I'd interviewed him. <laughs> um, but thanks for thanks for doing this. No, to be fair, I should have had um, an alcoholic drink. Do you want an alcoholic <laughs> drink? <laughs> Maybe midway through. All right, halfway through. <laughs> yeah. I was really keen to speak with you, I suppose, because I've spoken with a lot of men who work in the world of documentary film, um, and I'm very interested in getting kind of equally weighted points of view on, you know, what it, what it takes to make it in any creative field. So I guess I was very interested to speak to you because, you know, for someone who is quite young, you have had a pretty prolific 
career, I think, already in terms of the work that you've done and where it's screened and how it's been put out into the world. Mm. And so you started your career in, in Manchester, where you're from. Yeah. Yeah, so I went, I was going to do law at university. That was the plan. I had a, a place to do law. Um, and hadn't really thought too much about media. It just wasn't something, you know, where I grew up, it wasn't something that was kind of necessarily talked about as a possible career, really. They're kind of straightforward job op options, you know, kind of teacher, l lawyer or doctor was kind of up there. And then, um, just before I started university, I just thought, I'm not quite sure, actually, and started to think more about, initially, kind of journalism and, and factual television. And so took a year out and did quite a lot of work, unpaid work experience at different production companies in Manchester, as which, of which there aren't near as many as there are in London. Um, but then realised that actually I enjoyed p talking to people and finding out the stories and, and um, that journalistic element was something that I really enjoyed. So then decided to switch the course at university and do broadcast journalism. Uh, and during that time, so it was obviously a kind of more news-based degree, uh, less film. Um, and then I graduated and worked as a journalist because that's, that was kind of the most straightforward path um, to get into. But I'd been aware at university and was aware quite quickly that I didn't... I enjoyed elements of news, this kind of story and speaking to people about their experiences, but news wasn't quite the right environment for me because it was extremely fast turnaround. And it meant that at the end of the day, I was kind of leaving. And, you know, we got through so many news stories that I kind of couldn't remember them and didn't feel there was the space to tell them fully. So then kind of moved to kind of more long form current affairs because that was the more straightforward move and then to documentaries um, and then it was there that that's when I was like gosh this is what um, I absolutely it was just such a passion like genuinely like a kind of fire in my belly like I, I just loved kind of digging deeper so the journalistic element came into it but then the more creative way of telling the stories and, and taking them in a direction that maybe was less expected I right think. yeah so was filmmaking and storytelling um, was it something that you always had a curiosity with, like even in your childhood? Yeah, I think it, well, when I think back, I think it was because um, there's kind of like, you know, crazy little things. Like, I didn't really think about it until, until kind of recently. And like, when my parents have kind of been telling stories, and they were like, you know, when the girls were like six or seven, they were playing with prams and dolls, you would be writing, you would literally write stories, and then you'd sit in the lounge. <laughs> And just like read them and it's often like out loud but you were the only one in the lounge you know so, so that idea of story was obviously you know unknown at that point just something that i absolutely loved and w w it would just take me into a, a strange little world and and then even kind of very younger kind of first year of high school we'd go off on a school trip and you could be in a group of really r random things like outdoor exploring or I can't remember, like cooking class or whatever. And I always picked this kind of to be on the newspaper. There was like a, a newspaper thing. Um, you know, it was daft, we were like 11. But I, but looking back, I, that was exactly where I wanted to be. So there was obviously just, there's always been a, a draw. And I enjoy, my friends often say as well, you're, you never get bored of listening to people talk. And so I, I'm just, 
I guess that kind of naturally inquisitive mind, I don't know if it's kind of nosiness, but <laughs> I genuinely enjoy hearing often things that other people find mundane. I don't about people's lives and I'm quite happy to kind of genuinely enjoy listening to people's stories. So I guess if you can then turn that into a, a you know, a job, that is pr pretty amazing. And I guess if I was looking, if I knew what I knew now, I may have done film or kind of gone down that avenue a bit more when I was younger, but it just wasn't, it just seemed out of the realms of possibility to kind of start going into a really creative world. You know, journalism seemed a bit more set and a bit more of a possible career than a far more creative film environment. I just didn't know anybody who worked in media at all. So even, even getting into a production company, to, you know, I literally printed a hundred CVs and knocked on doors to get my, my foot in to make a cup of tea. So, so it was quite a, a kind of, you know, it was very much start from the bottom and prove you can make cups of tea yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Do you remember uh, any kind of, I guess, early experiences like any of those stories that you used to write or any uh, sort of more specific experiences that you had? that might have been influential? Stories that I, I used to write. I can't, do you know, I genuinely can't remember. Um, we, do you know what, it's quite strange. When I, was a, when I was young, when I was a child, oddly, I was a child that my, my mum would say, you, you didn't, you know how other kids could watch cartoons that were total make-believe and you know, totally imagination could never have been real. She was like, you almost did, you couldn't, she was like, you would often go for things that were a bit more, seem more mature at the time, but they had some thread of it, it being possible and kind of a factual element, which is quite unusual, for, I guess, for a child. She was like, you just have no engagement with things that were just... Fantasy. To, fantasy to, you know, just, yeah, fantasy was fine if it was a kind of kind of possible but yeah things that I guess cartoons that yeah were, were kind of not um, and so I don't know I think there was always a kind of a underpinning of, of real life that would take me something somewhere else mm. and I guess I guess I quite enjoyed listening I, I guess I, my grandfather was probably quite a huge influence because he traveled a lot when he was younger, he was a quite adventurous. He was quite a risk taker, and then he, and throughout his entire life, he was quite spontaneous. And he, even you know, he died when he was eighty-nine. But he was travelling with my grandmother up until about the age of eighty-two for kind of six months of the year, exploring. And I guess it was his story. Weirdly, I, I don't know how that connects to such, but his stories of kind of exciting and exotic places and stories I'd not heard before. I get him to retell and retell because they weren't stories I was hearing every day, and and maybe there was something in that about going off and exploring. You know, there's things that you just don't know, and actually it's quite exciting to go off yourself and and find them out, especially with no knowledge beforehand of what you will find. Find, I think. Sure. I think probably. Did you feel as though Manchester was? I mean, I know you said before you didn't actually know anyone who worked in media. And so the idea of pursuing a career in media was kind of non-existent. But did you feel as though you grew up in an environment that was conducive to following a creative career? Um, 
Uh, I've got, I guess I've got, in a way, I've got very supportive parents. I've got very open-minded parents who, who, you know, who whatever I wanted to do would encourage me to follow that passion and, and instilled in me that it was possible if I put in the hard work. You know, it would be very hard, but it was possible. Um, but I'd say more generally, not not really, you know, I was in a, I grew up in a school where those creative jobs were kind of shut down quite young, you know, that's just not, not what happens, that's just not possible, people we know don't do that, you know, like, hang on, let's be more realistic, let's drag you back into this kind of small pool of jobs that you can get and, you know, you'll always earn this or you'll always... I don't know, you know, you go, to, you go to work to do a job to earn money and it's nine to five and that's what you do. Yeah, that's maybe a bit harsh, but creative jobs were just, it, my, where I grew up in the area and my school, I just don't think, in no way were they encouraged at all. It was not feasible. The, the town where I grew up, and even I'd say, like, Manchester's fantastic, but there wasn't money pumped into arts and culture, and especially at school, which is quite, you know, like now, I'm kind of going back to that school and, and trying to encourage them to let me do talks or just just allow those kind of, that kind of broader thinking and and that you actually can do whatever you want. It, it sounds really cliche and I don't, but you can if you're quite focused and you put your mind to it. Of course you can. Because um, I think often a lot of people get into filmmaking especially or the creative industries because they know somebody who can help them get in or give them the confidence to know that it's a you know it's a possible option and um, rather than giving up quite early on sure. um, but yeah but then I was aware that Manchester was quite for me Manchester also felt quite limited yeah we actually met someone last week or the week before who was also from Manchester and she is now a producer on X Factor and Britain's Got Talent. She was saying she felt like it was actually a great place to cut the teeth um, in terms of like actually being in the system because there weren't there wasn't the same competition that there is in London for the kind of those kind of jobs. Yeah, I guess there's not the same competition, um, and I think there is a lot of opportunity now up there for entertainment and factual entertainment and children's and sport documentary far less so like we, we, you know I kind of started on tonight with Trevor McDonald which is a, a current affairs ITV you know program and you were working a like in your holidays I don't you were yeah, yeah so holidays. I was at university and I would be uh, yeah in a, the holidays from university and I'd be a runner um, on kind of any program um, for ITV studios kind of I'd go one day a week and work as I say, making the tea and, and copying scripts, but it wasn't really. It was a, it was a lucky place to start in a way because you know the kind of areas in the UK where you can work in television are kind of London, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, a little bit in Leeds, Cardiff. You know, unless you live close to those places, you can't. There's n there's not really the opportunity to do the work. So in that way, it was lucky, but the kind of filmmaking that I knew I wanted to do, it isn't possible to do it there, I don't think. Or to work with on, on lots of different productions or with established directors that you really want to learn from. For whatever reason, unfortunately, there isn't enough being made up there. Um, 
uh, and uh, there should be more, certainly. But it meant I wanted to come to London. It was exciting for me to move to London. But I guess some people probably don't follow their kind of career path that they want to do documentary because they don't want to make the move to London. It felt it feels like that the big decision. Sure, I and I guess it could be like uh, in a literal sense a scary prospect to move from well I mean Manchester's not a small town but like to move from <laughs> no but it's a big it is it's a big huge move. it's massive yeah. yeah yeah it's totally different um, and I absolutely love London and can't imagine leaving you know I might go somewhere abroad but Manchester in comparison I guess cause it's familiar it's where I grew up so it feels quite familiar and quite small so I quite enjoy I'm still enjoying London but I, I'm aware that not, you know, people may not. Were there any like culture shocks or any kind of like? <laughs> <laughs> I remember moving down and thinking, oh, you know, that kind of total cliche that everyone's going to be rude and obnoxious and push you out of the way. And there wasn't that actually. I find everyone to be, I find it to be quite, I, I enjoy it. I feel it's quite a friendly place actually. There is a sense of community because people, the majority of the time, have come from all over the world so no, everyone feels a little bit lost in their own way mm. I guess uh, there was a lot of commenting on my accent there still is which is quite odd it's uh, you know that's something that I didn't know about until I moved over to London the whole mm. like accent and class based mm. kind of judgment that happens mm. I mean I guess I'm kind of uh, doesn't happen to me mm. people just go silly Australian but yeah, I didn't, it, it was just not something that I was aware of at all. No, and I think if you come from another country, yeah, that kind of class. Because actually my accent, you know, I come from a place that is totally working class and and so that is picked up in my accent. Uh, and, and so it is quite interesting because actually to work in television, often you've had to work for free or... So you have to come from a, you know, I'd say a relatively, I don't know, there has to be some sort of support that enables you to do that work experience for free. So you have to come from a certain background most of the time. And also what I did find is in any creative industry, in this, you know, in filmmaking, I didn't, there's like almost a language that you have to learn. That's, that I, I remember coming down and being quite intimidated being in meetings and people were using this quite, I don't know, say flowery language, but it felt quite pretentious. And I would be sat there thinking, I, I don't really know what people are trying to say. I can't, oh my gosh, I'm not used to speaking in this way. And I guess part of you is, you feel like a bit of an imposter, like you shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be here uh, because I don't speak like these people. But then actually you realise that maybe you have the same ideas as them anyway. Or, you know, good ideas. And I guess you learn... Uh, over time you get confidence and you also probably do adapt more of that pretentious language and throw it out there, do you know what I mean? Often it's not necessary, you can probably cut to the point quite clearly, um, but I think it means sometimes people need it to sound more creative or it kind to be of in a different them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, so I think that for me, um, because I'm from a part of the UK, certainly where people talk very directly, there is no opportunity to be pretentious people would look at you you know my family my friends would be like you know would very quickly be like sorry what on earth has happened to you yeah. speak like everybody <laughs> else who do you think you are <laughs> so they kind of do say that to me um, but often it's quite nice but then on the other hand it's quite nice going to that like creative interesting space and thinking those kind of more deep uh, uh, 
bold ideas. So it's not just using pretentious language for the sake of it, but it was certainly a, a learning cur curve um, to be able to adapt in that way. Sure. I think. And so what did you feel like, I mean, what was the purpose of moving to London? Was there a specific job or was it just to kind of because this is where you felt like you were going to be able to achieve what you wanted. Yeah, yeah, I think I just got, I got to a point in Manchester where uh, I had to go to Newcastle first and I worked up there on a, on a series um, about doctors for the BBC and, and lived up there for kind of three or four months on location. Um, and then the jobs in Manchester just weren't, I wasn't getting kind of as excited, they were more factual entertainment. Um, and I was ready, you know, I was ready for a change, I'd finished university. And um, I was excited to make the move. My friends were down here. So I did, I managed to get a job uh, working for a production company in London. Um, and it was just, and I, my tactic was kind of, I remember thinking, gosh, there are filmmakers that I know make these amazing films, often single documentaries. And I just, they're the films I really want to make eventually. And that, if, if ever that kind of, I re, that's where I want to aim. I, it may not ever happen, but that's what I want to do. Um, and so it was more having on my radar the production companies and the directors and the execs who were making the type of films that I really appreciated. What were some of your uh, influences? So there were people like, um, well interesting I'm working for a company now called Minnow Films that's run by a director called Morgan Matthews and so I not only I admired Morgan's filmmaking, um, it was quite unique to other filmmaking I'd seen and also I looked at, you know, I, I looked at what I was watching or read through what production companies had done and Minnow was one of the companies that I wrote to before moving to London and kind of said, you know, I watched this and I loved it. They never replied to me. <laughs> they didn't reply to me. But then there was um, Vanessa Engel, um, who, who has been at the, well, had been at the BBC for kind of 25 years. She, she was another director that I just really enjoyed her kind of bold, distinct filmmaking style. You know, they, it was just that distinction and that, I, you know, and I wasn't quite sure how it ended up getting to the point it had been to, but that, but basically I'd, I'd started off working on documentaries, like the one called Junior Doctors for BBC Three, for example, and that was a series and it was brilliant and it did really, really well. But what, what I've kind of found early on was that we were on a huge crew, I was a researcher, and it, everyone was kind of running around all day in a the hospital. There was really brilliant people in the production, but everyone was running around all day. They, you know, whether you were a researcher, a runner, like AP, director, you know, everyone kind of picked up a camera and, and hoovered up material. <laughs> and, and then the edit would start to make six films, and there was reams and reams and reams of material and often not a clear, and this was no one's fault, it's just the way you have to make series sometimes, you know, you have two teams of, you know, a director and an AP or whatever. In fact, there was reams of material, but actually there was no coherent storytelling in the overall, and I thought, gosh, I don't know if I can do this as a career, because I didn't know how much, it sounds awful, but I didn't really know how much I was using my brain while doing that. Like, I enjoyed capturing the scenes, and, you know, 
each day there was being interesting story and it captured a small scene, but I just didn't. Um, I just didn't quite know. So, I, and then it was through. Then I was contacted by Vanessa Engel to work with her as an AP. And then once I started working with Vanessa, then my brain hurt <laughs> a lot. And Vanessa's extremely organised and a deep thinker and an incredible filmmaker. And every day was challenging. And you know, it wasn't a case of just going filming everything that moved and then thinking about what it was going to be afterwards or in the edit. It was very clearly having a sense of what each scene would do and each day would do. So then I was like, oh, hang on, this is really engaging and exciting because when done properly, you're, you are challenged all the time, you know, all the time. Um, so, yeah. So what was, your, what was the process going from that to starting to produce some of the films that you made, like How to Die and, and Asperger's and Me? It was quite a natural progression. Um, it's quite interesting actually because uh, you know, I made the team and I was, I was a researcher uh, for a decent period of time on different projects um, in terms of, you know, in terms of kind of casting and setting up shoots and been across loads of different things, like doing any anything that was asked to me, kind of being willing just really, really willing to do and, want, and genuinely wanting to do the best job and learn and therefore learning all the time and then um, I was an AP, uh, you know, for, for Vanessa on a single and then a series and then on, on different films, some were, that were shot in the US, one about Mexican immigration, another about women in prison. Um, what is, what's for people listening who may not know what an AP is, what, how would you describe that So job? an assistant producer, so I'd say a researcher is, you know, you are doing research and fact checking and you're going out on shoots with a more experienced you know, director. Um, you're casting often. Um, and then an AP, I guess, it, you know, there are different levels and there are totally different roles for an assistant producer on different projects. And my experience working with um, directors on single films meant that it was a really brilliant relationship for me as an assistant producer and quite collaborative because you were working with these directors closely and you could look then at how they how they worked how they made their films and you, I guess it started to build that com confidence kind of ideas and these are the contributors you know you'd still be doing all the same work as the researcher because on these pro projects there was just you as an assistant producer and the director that was it to make you know an hour-long film or, or whatever but I guess it enabled a dialogue with the with the director, and so, as I say, your ideas are being listened to and then built on, and and so I was it. It was actually quite common at, at that point for like those big series to be made, like Twenty Four Hours in A and E, or like the thing like Junior Doctors that I was making, or you know, series with six or eight parts and big crews and actually what happened people could jump quite quickly you could be an assistant producer on one series go back and be a producer go back the next series and be a director so people were jumping fast and I um, and I was aware that that was a path they could you could take but I just felt that I wanted to work on different films and again with more directors um, and interesting directors that I really respected 
was that because you hoped to learn from them or because you wanted to produce their work or was there yeah I think there was a bit of everything I wanted to learn from them um, work on I guess I was picking films that I found exciting and was passionate genuinely passionate about you know there was a, there was a pull of like career and progression but but I'd say in equal measure there was a there was also a pull of what do I enjoy and what do I find exciting because then you will work so much you're just so much more motivated well I, you know you just that's what I found I was and so it was you know I worked on films where it's a real privilege to work on them and also produce for, for brilliant directors and I guess part of it was confidence as well that it's like oh I don't know if I'm ready to I don't know if I'll ever direct I don't know if I'm good enough to direct and I think part of that actually I don't know but I would say that is a female thing you know I know a lot of exceptional really really exceptional female producers who are all saying the same thing I don't know if I'm quite good enough to direct and they absolutely are it's when you say it's a female thing, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you say it's a female thing, do you mean because there aren't as many females in that position, so you don't have necessarily the role models? Yeah, I think I think it's partly that. I think when a when an industry is so male dominated, um, that's accepted. That that you know, you, you you kind of assume there's some reason for that, and I think it's partly kind of that that. Girls, I don't know. The female pe females that I know that are, are kind of producing are exceptional. Many are exceptionally good at their job, almost perfectionists, and therefore want to do everything perfectly. And it's hard to make the leap. Or there's a sense of imposter syndrome because there aren't so many women. Shooting is a big thing. So that you know, as I say, when I was an assistant producer, there were a lot of guys who could shoot you could point a camera put it in focus and shoot and, and slightly you know because biology you know they're bigger so they were given the cameras or they they will have the confidence to say yeah I can shoot um, and then it meant that because they could put the camera in focus and press record that they were then very quickly propelled to be a director and and often the females who were the assistant producers were then producing and and not picking up the camera and then got this fear of not picking up the camera. It was kind of, and when you speak to people who are senior, at like exec level or creative director who you know, have more experience, they say, uh, they, they, and this is not my opinion, this is what people have said, that, that actually, you know, boys, men will go into interviews and say, yeah, I can shoot. And you look at their rushes and you're like, gosh, that's not, you know, it's not great. But, the, the, but actually men are saying, yeah, I can do it straight away. Not necessarily overselling, but when we have the confidence just to considered. do it, so much more. They're all going, no, no, no. I'm not very good. I'm not very good. Yeah. I don't know if I can do it. Um, and and actually, they they can. But it, so it's not. No one can be blamed as such. But it's just the there are a lot of people that I know that that are you know that are brilliant producers that I'm trying to say just do it. Just just make the leap because you will you know you, you will learn the shooting that you know how the producing is actually really really hard you know a, that takes longer to learn I think yeah in a way I mean even though directing is a craft there's something a lot more instinctive about directing than there is like producing is a lot more pragmatic yeah but if you ju if you don't understand you don't need to have done it necessarily I think it's helpful to understand it mm. to get the best film you know sure and sometimes when 
I don't know, in my kind of mid to late 20s, there was, everyone was just like, I want to be a director by, like, next year or by the age of 30. Um, it, it, you know, it felt like it's pressure, isn't it, sometimes, to reach a certain point by a certain age. Sure. And I think also, you know, if there isn't the same opportunity, which there obviously has not been for women in the film industry or any industry, then, you know, like you say, when you're growing up in an environment where there's no one to kind of look to, to go, that's what I want to do, unless you have the disposition to want to be some kind of trendsetter or um, someone to break new ground, it's just not going to occur to you that that's even an option. And it's not, you know, as I say, it's not anybody's fault and stuff. It's as much the females, you know, I was holding back because I was like, oh, I don't quite know if I'm good enough. So it's as much for you to kind of be bold in that way, I guess. Mm. So what was, you know, going from producing um, into where you actually did direct something with, with Manchester Bomb? So it was kind of a... So I did... Um, I worked with an amazing director um, called Rowan Deacon, who I'm working with again now, actually. Um, but And I worked with Rowan on... Um, a film called How to Die Simon's Choice and it was through the making of that I guess working with Rowan gave me confidence that it was extremely collaborative and there were moments within that as a producer where I was thinking about how I would shoot a scene or you know questioning I would do and things like that and, and Rowan and I started to be so much on the same page I was thinking oh gosh this is, I'd love to be just doing this I said I have a, I have a sense of that you know, because as a producer, you set everything, put everything in place, and then obviously the director, you know, comes in and, and films it, etc. Um, and then I worked with Charlie Russell on Asperger's and Me, and and Charlie again is is, is lovely and very generous and really really collaborative, and, and the same thing was happening. And so I, I got, to, I guess I got to a point, finally, <laughs> kind of personal <laughs> point of view. It's like, oh, okay, you seem to know what you, or it was more like other people were saying you should direct. Um, which obviously for whatever reason I maybe needed other people to say uh, no you, you do know what you're doing a little bit and so then it's hard to get into directing it's really really um, hard to make that that jump especially when you're kind of an established producer because people are kind of like well that's how they see you as a producer or they want you as a producer on their project they pigeonhole you and yeah and it's, it's a nice place to be because if you're you've established yourself then you've got the opportunity of some really incredible films to work on and produce um, and then to make the leap to director you obviously have to um, the sidestep means that you don't get to work on those films that are you know big singles at 9pm about really interesting subjects because you're not experienced as a director so there has to be a compromise and it's I guess to be a direct to, to make that kind of change you either have to go and work on a series you know and do one episode in a big series um, or you you, you know, then you just do something so that will get a smaller audience, inevitably. And so I applied for the BBC New Director Scheme and, and, and did it that way because it enabled, you know, there was a lot of freedom as to what you could do editorially with that uh, and make a single film, potentially. So, so I went down that route. But it was, but I don't know really if I hadn't got on that. It would have taken a lot of trying to persuade people, I think, to give me a break to make my first film because it's a risk for people when you've not 
been, uh, you know, in the in the full edit yourself and and been across something as a director because there are so many other people they could have. You know, money's an issue, budget, schedule is better better option option to kind of have a safe pair of hands, I think, rather than take a punt on a new director. Sure, but you were obviously well credentialed enough to get that position. Well, they picked six people. Um, I think there was about there were quite. I don't know if there's a thousand or fifteen hundred. There's a lot of applicants. But I just, I was like, by that point, I was kind of absolutely desperate for it. Like, really, really, really wanted it. Um, and I guess because I produce, maybe that enabled a kind of safe pair of hands on one, you know, in a sense, from a kind, you know, the experience of kind of legal, compliance, setting up shoots, being across budgets and schedules. It meant that actually I, I got a lot of experience. So. Um, it was if the filming petrified me. Like I genuinely had sleepless nights because I'd been able to work on productions with directors of photography who were ex who were obviously the most beautiful shooters and these amazing directors who had so much more experience. But it was the shooting I'd never shot anything for broadcast, really, because as a producer working on those single films, you just don't because either the director shooting or the director of photography. On a, on a big series, it's slightly different. Sometimes you can put up the camera, but I hadn't shot for years, and I, like, and even like I say, I had on junior doctors in like like about nine years before, and even then it was like dreadful, you know. <laughs> God knows what I was. So I was absolutely petrified when I got the BBC director's scheme. Like I was excited, like really, really excited. But I'd say, as excited, I was petrified, like 50-50. I just thought, how do I shoot? Like, what if I can't shoot? What if this, my shooting is that dreadful? It's unwatchable and it's not going to be beautiful. That was like my big, big concern. Uh, but actually, once I, once I, I was kind of thrown in the deep end because it's like, well, there was me and and a, an assistant producer, and I had to shoot, I had to shoot it. So it was actually good to be that terrified, and and it was fine. <laughs> so, Sink or swim. Fell it. Yeah, it was. But actually, it was the best thing, really. Because it was um, shooting non-stop from kind of September till about uh, February, uh, and I, yeah, we had a few DOP days, but that was it. And so, it, well, yeah, and it, it might, and it improves quite quickly your shooting. And I think I'd watched watching amazing director of photography as well was quite helpful. Uh, that I only realised when it came to actually shooting, you don't realise, but when you're watching rushes of people who are amazing shooters and you're watching the raw rushes, you. It, it, yeah, you take in, I think, more than you realise at the time. It's not like kind of rushing around and trying to capture everything or everyone that's moving. You're watching it in a much more calm, you know, that directors of photography are so calm, aren't they, and considered, and, and they don't move that much. So when I was deep inside, like, absolutely panicking, I, I was also saying, just stay still, hold the shot, and keep it in focus. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, Most that importantly, yeah. keep it in focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you feel like you had learned, maybe consciously or otherwise, from all these years of observing great directors as well as great DPs? Um, I guess about storytelling specifically yeah. and, and the craft. Yeah, I think that. I think um, that you, to be, I guess there are different elements really. Um, the directors that were exceptional had a mix of two things. One, they were very organised and considered like, extremely organised. I think people think creative people can't be organised, the two don't go together. 
actually they were all very sure of what they were trying to get, but also also totally open, entirely open to things take, going in a different direction and following the story. So rather than having a, you know, you may have an idea of what you think the film, there has to be an idea of what, what shape the film is going to take or, you know, what tone it's going to take. But actually, when you're in a story and that's kind of unfolding in front of you, to have the confidence to just kind of push to one side those ideas that it, what it might have been and just, just kind of follow it. Um, but also have a clear narrative in your head. Or, the storytelling is kind of utterly essential. Um, and also to be quite, um, to be open-minded and kind of bold and that it's exciting to try new things. I guess that sometimes you have to just think, you know, totally differently to make things work. And, and often, even the most experienced people are not sure of their, the ideas, but it's almost having the confidence just to, to try them or to push them. And that is something that I'm trying to learn, because often you, you, know, you have the idea in you and it just takes the confidence to say it. And even if it sounds utterly ridiculous, um, that, that's kind of okay. And some things you try and it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think not to take that too personally. How do you set up, like, a, you know, when you're going to, say, say, this project that you're working on right now, obviously there are variables that you can't foresee that come into play. How do you set up the kind of, um, the, the progression of, of, of a documentary when you set out to make one? I guess it, it depends, doesn't it, in a way. I mean, you... You know, that when you're working for a UK broadcaster, if it's the BBC or you know, Channel 4 or whatever, you, you, know, you have to be realistic as well that there is a budget that's set and you know, there'll be a delivery date. So the creative process is amazing, but unfortunately there's, always kind of, there's also a kind of business element as well to it. So it's not just all some artistic process and you start going, off and doing whatever you want and trying all these ideas that may or may not work. You, you are unfortunately often you know, restricted by money and the time it, it takes and you have to work in those constraints. Um, but often you have a dialogue going with, with brilliant commissioners um, throughout and they will be, be happy to kind of embrace new ideas along the way. Or maybe if it changes direction. But for example, the Manchester, uh, the Manchester bomb film, we started making that, and it was a company called Blakeway North, actually, back, back in Manchester, who had the idea to you know, make a film about the terrorist attack in Manchester, uh, and, and to go back to the girls who were there, and for them to tell the story of what happened. And there were, it, it was kind of retelling of it, down the lens interviews, yeah, the, the kind of clear story of that night. And it was only when we started meeting them, and I started talking to these girls and their families, and we met them, started meeting them in the September. The, the terrorist attack had happened at the end of May. You know, that is only a few months. And actually what we realised very quickly were these girls were still suffering from PTSD and trauma. And it very, you know, it was very evident. They were not in a position to be able to analyse their own feelings. One, they were too young and they were in the midst of a trauma. They were still suffering these traumatic symptoms. So it became very apparent, actually, the more interesting film is probably 
exploring that and going with that and capturing as you know a, a sense of what they're going through now, rather than a re- just a pure retelling of it. And so the BBC were amazing, were really really brilliant at, at kind of listening to that and responding to that, and that and we we were allowed to do that because actually it, it became I, I thought more interesting. Everyone knew the story a little bit. And the girls were quite incredible, speaking to girls of that age about what they were going through. And they were incredibly open and we built a good relationship. And I guess now I'm working on a film that's um, a legal case that was in the Court of Appeal last week. And there was meant to be a conclusion as to whether a woman would stay in prison for another 10 years or be released um, and her conviction overturned to manslaughter. And that, that result was meant to come on Thursday. Actually, neither of those things happened, and what they've said is there's got to be an entire retrial. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that it you've been com- making that for already for like what six months? Yeah. Or something, yeah. So we've been making it, working on it since September. The plan was to, you know, the edit has started to make this single film. Um, the appeal was originally meant to be in November, pushed back to January, pushed back to February, and now we have to wait for a retrial. The story actually has ended up being far more interesting, um, far yeah, and far bigger than what we originally thought it was, and really, really gripping and interesting on the kind of societal level. So it, there's a question around whether it's still a 160-minute film or you know a different configuration, and then, but then there's also you know people that we need to pick up interviews with many of them we now can't do until the trial is complete and that and we will need to capture a sense of what's going on around the trial and we we were told today by the lawyer you know when will the trial happen and they said well how long is a piece of string yeah. so in terms of the budget and schedule <laughs> um it changes a lot so then you can have to adapt and try and figure out what is possible it's pretty crazy and then once I mean, you said that things, something was already in the edit, I guess, for the idea of it being a one-off mm. feature. But as it kind of shifts and moves, there's obviously going to be a certain level of adaption. Once you've got everything in the can, is there, like, do you have a particular process that you like to adhere to, or is it on a kind of case-by-case basis as to how the edit unfolds? Well, it's quite interesting because I've only done, this will only be my second edit. Right. So I'm like, yeah. yeah. So I was, so I've been involved in edits as a producer, um, in terms of like working throughout them and being there to the end, but not in there every single day. So that was quite a kind of daunting process. But it's a, it's a brilliant process. Hmm. It, you know, it's utterly, it, it's exci- it's really, really, really exciting to be to be in it. But you know, I guess editors work in different ways. Um, and the editor I work with on the Manchester Bomb film, you know, we were kind of in there every day looking at kind of word by word and getting it down these rabbit holes quite often. Um, and I guess because of my lack of, lack of experience, sometimes I couldn't see things kind of how to fix the structural problems or the bigger overview problems because I don't have the edit experience in that way. So I can remember what people had said, or what I found interesting, which would go in the film. But it needed kind of execs, you know, commissioners to come in and, and help with that. And, and I think it, it varies. So in that film, the editor 
we were, we were in there a lot of the time together, apart from the first couple of weeks when I was still filming, but this, at the moment, we we're also working with a brilliant editor called Joe Carey, who's extremely experienced and is, and is totally brilliant. Um, and he, because of the schedule change as well, but he's kind of in the, Joe, Joe is in the zone, like kind of watching all the rushes and getting up to speed and actually seems to just be in that on his own at the moment and coming at it with that totally different perspective I think because we, we're so you know we're immersed in 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 the film and and are talking to people every day whereas for him it's that totally different point of view because he's just got the rushes in front of him rather than thinking oh it could be this or some person told me this but they won't be on camera but we might get them on camera he's not thinking that way um, so obviously that's extremely helpful mm. how do you feel as though you're you know, you said before that when you started, your kind of aspiration was to be making these films that you're now making. Yes. How would you, well, how would you define uh, success now versus how you would have, might have defined it when you were at film school um, or general school? That, that's, quite, that's quite a challenging question. Um, <laughs> It's hard, isn't it? Because the, um, if someone had told me, yeah, I'd be directing now and, and making films for the BBC, you know, making really interesting, powerful films, I, I wouldn't quite believe it. Like, I, w I would have been kind of so, so grateful. And I guess there is a, a feeling of that. And now the imposter syndrome is kind of back and will probably be around. For, you know, there's a feeling of, oh gosh, am I. I don't know if I'm quite good enough. I'll just keep working hard, and, and, and people around me, you know, senior people, are saying, "No, no, you're doing it. You're doing a good job." But I guess you don't quite, you know, it's hard you don't, when you've not got all the experience. I think it probably takes like five years to get to the point where you're like, "Oh no, no, I, I kind of know what I'm doing." And then even I'm not sure if you know if directors do feel like that all the time because every project is so different. But I guess. In terms of success, I, would, I don't really have, I'm not the kind of person to think in five years or in ten years, I want to be in a certain, at a certain level or in a certain role and earning a lot of money. I, I just always thought, gosh, I'd love to be working on incredible films. The directing element seemed an amazing thing to do, but so out of reach. I guess success, I'd just say, for me, would be to genuinely to keep working on films that I genuinely think are important and I'm passionate about and, and, where, there's an, and where there's an element of uncertainty I quite like that I don't quite like knowing what it's going to be um, at the beginning I really love that actually and so I, I guess I, can, I just have to keep keep doing that and trying to trying hard to keep the imposter syndrome at bay and just like push that right down yeah. Right down and just think, you know, it's okay. And over time, the kind of confidence will build. But it's exciting. Like it feels really, really exciting. I think that fear. When I, to be fair, when I've spoken to directors that are extremely successful, you know, they've said a mix of things, and they're like, I'm. They said they feel petrified all the time, and it keeps you motivated and probably keeps you desperate to do the best job you can do, rather than being complacent. And also, it's hard, isn't it? Because people are like, oh, how do you? measure success and I worked on films that have been nominated for BAFTAs and, and things like that and I guess at one point you know that's amazing it does feel amazing and like my mum loves you know she loved it when I went to the ceremony and things like that but but then you realize it's kind of 
it's almost an element of kind of, you can't define success by awards and things like that because sometimes you're lucky with how a film unfolds and you were just there to capture an amazing story and you know it just I don't think you should so a really really brilliant document, documentary maker said to me once he's like just don't uh, try not to take any notice of awards I mean he might have been saying that because he'd won he'd won like all of them but he was like just don't think about that and think about the long term reputation of a film and how you know the power the film has beyond all that because um, people get excited about things don't they in the heat, you know in a moment but I guess if you're really proud of the films you've made in the past then that's a pretty great position to be in I think mm. and we're lucky that we're currently in the midst of a golden era of documentary filmmaking yeah yeah I think it's quite exciting yeah that idea that people don't don't like documentaries or you can't go into forensic detail and really extrapolate out it, it's kind of you know, it's a myth now, isn't it? It's like people have really got an appetite for it. And so you can kind of delve even deeper. And I just, did, for some reason, for whatever reason, the, the films that I've tended to work on a lot of the time are quite, the subject matter is heavy. You know, it's like, someone did say that, like, you, you do tend to pick really depressing subjects, but actually then it's not depressing. It, it, it's interesting. It's subjects where you don't quite know what you think or you think you know something about a subject and then you can start to explore it and you realise that you don't at all. Maybe challenging is a better word than depressing. Yeah, cha challenging, certainly. Exactly. And that idea that people might go into it thinking it's depressing, but actually it might be a subject that, I, you know, that isn't at all. It changes their mind or their perception yeah, about something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think someone said that to me once before, an exec I worked with, you know, he was like, you should really think about subjects where people think they know what they think and then you're enabling, you know, you go in and you can pull them in a different direction. And it's not telling them what to think. It pulls them in the direction back and forth throughout the whole film and then leaves them, you know, wanting to debate it and talk about it. There's lots of unanswered questions. And I think that's, that, that, that's, quite, that's something that I really took on. And I was like, yeah, you, d you don't want to be forcing an opinion necessarily mm. down people's throats. No, you want people to lean in, not feel spoon-fed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for uh, having my second pubcast with me. I didn't get you a drink, so I feel like <laughs> no. I'm going to have to get so you one. So it's fine, I've still got the drinks of a Diet Coke. Yeah. Um, I finish all of my conversations with the same question, which is, I was told last week I should probably put in the middle, not the end of the conversation. <laughs> but anyway, the question is, what makes you silly? What makes me what, sorry? Silly. Silly? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what makes you silly? Uh, a lot of things. A lot of things. That's a, that is a random question. Yeah. Um, I'm quite easy to make silly. I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Lo lots of things make me silly. But I think, I think maybe that's something. I think people, I think that's it, that kind of silliness or some people have said to me, you've got quite a disarming manner. Maybe because I, I seem a bit silly or <laughs> a less authoritative, which worries me sometimes. But um, you wear leopard print pants, uh, trousers, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Keep getting that wrong. I look quite young. But yeah, I'd say a, a lot of things make me silly. And I think sometimes when you're, you're allowed to be silly, making films and stuff. And I think, you know, it, if contributors know that you're human and you've got, you know, you can relax and be normal, it's quite disarming, I think. Especially if, they're like very hev especially if they're like heavily weighted. 
uh, films. Yeah, I don't think you should kind of take yourself too seriously at all. Yeah. I just really, really don't. And don't think as some director that you're, you know, keep that pretentious language <laughs> to a minimum. Because actually, you're in a, you're in a, you know, you're able to make amazing films because for some reason people are extremely generous in allowing you to film with them. Mm. Um, but yeah, sometimes I guess you do have to be quite silly on the on your days off. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Liz. Thank you.